following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, good morning, 11 o'clockers. This feels really weird. Uh, many of you I haven't seen since November. I'm a lot more awake now than I normally am at 9. I'm also a lot more hungry right now than I normally am at 9. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we'll switch. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Gospel of Luke chapter 7. I look forward this morning to opening up and really peeling back the curtain on what I believe is one of the most beautiful stories in uh, all of Scripture of the heart of Christ toward humble and repentant sinners. We've prayed much this morning, but I'd like to do so again to go before the throne of grace and really plead for God's help in our time together. So let us pray. God, we come before you this morning humble and needy. Uh, God, I ask as we open up your word, uh, would you empower my preaching, help me to get out of the way? Would you speak through me? Uh, Lord, we need this book. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given us. Thank you for the stories of grace and redemption. Uh, God, I ask that you would break down the hard hearts Lord, would you shine the light of the gospel into our hearts? God, we need you. We are so proud. We are so like the Pharisees that we will read about in our passage. Lord, would you help us to be once again reminded of our sinfulness, once again reminded of our need, make us desperate, make us broken, and help us to run before your throne of grace and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, before we land in Luke 7, 36 through 50, I want to take a little bit of time to walk through the first part of this chapter together. Uh, really, there are three separate accounts in Luke chapter 7 that I think we're all pretty familiar with. Verses 1 through 10 tell the story of a Roman centurion whose servant is sick. And this Roman centurion apparently was in good standing with the Jewish people. According to the text, he played some role. We're not quite sure what that role was, but some role in the building of the people's temple. He treated these people well, even though he didn't have to. There was often a difficult relationship between the Jewish people and their Roman overlords. But this was uh, a man who was good to the Jewish people. However, he was a Gentile. And uh, most importantly, as far as the readers of Luke would be concerned, he was outside of the covenant with God's people, yet he had a kind heart toward them. He had a servant who was sick. The Jewish leaders went to Jesus and uh, on his behalf asked that Jesus would intervene. And sure enough, Jesus healed this Roman centurion's servant. And then verses 11 through 17 tell another familiar story where we find yet another individual who was relatively low on the social rung in that culture. Uh, she was a widow, and, and her sorrow and brokenness uh, came to a head in this chapter where not only had she lost her husband, but in Luke 7, we see that she loses her only son. And as Jesus is entering the town, he meets this woman and this funeral procession carrying her dead son out of the town to be buried. And Jesus is broken in his heart for this woman and takes pity on her and heals her son, raises him, not does not heal him, raises him from the dead. And then verses 18 through 35 are again another familiar story where John the Baptist, who is now in prison, actually sends some of his disciples to go talk to Jesus and actually question him whether or not he is the Messiah who had come, whether or not he is the man who John proclaimed him to be for all those years. 
Now, John the Baptist is someone not known for his status or prestige. He is really a, a humble outcast, but a faithful prophet. These disciples of John go, and, and they see the works of Jesus. Jesus says, look at my works, go back, tell John what you saw, and he will know the truth. But Luke 7, verses 28 through 30 really set the stage for this final story in chapter 7. Verses 28 through 30, Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So the people, even the tax collectors, the passage tells us, which uh, were persona non grata at that time, not much different from today, except I think people hated them then even more than we tend to hate them now. Even the tax collectors declared that this teaching of Christ uh, was just. They believed on his message. They believed that the Messiah had come to take away the sins of the world. And yet, the Pharisees rejected not just the message of John the Baptist, not just Jesus, but the very purpose of God. And so what Jesus is doing in this chapter is he's really turning human wisdom on its head. He are, he's saying things like, the first are last, and the last are first. Uh, he, the humble are exalted, and the proud are brought low. And all of these realities are because of the impending work of Christ to atone for sin. So with that in mind, with that backdrop, the author of Luke now takes us to this account in verses 36 through 50, where we read, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, she, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So as we open up this passage, verses 36 and 37 really set the stage by telling us the main players in this account. We have a Pharisee and a woman of the city. There's an immediate contrast here. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They were well thought of. They externally had things all together. They were really the picture of religious zeal and righteousness. 
And then the woman. We're told that she was a woman of the city. We probably should understand that as she was likely a prostitute. And if there was any question in our minds of what she was up to, a woman of the city who was a sinner. In case there was any doubt, the author of Luke is being very clear to let us know that this woman had a reputation. And we'll actually see, based on the interaction that the Pharisee has with her in just a moment, she apparently had a reputation. The people at this meal all knew who she was. There are not two people more different in the entire town. And then as we enter into this passage in verses 37 and 38, the scene is set where Jesus is invited into the house of this Pharisee. They're reclining at table, and this woman hears about the presence of Jesus. She seeks him out, and she enters into the house. Now, something we have to understand is that there was not another house in the whole town that would have been less welcoming than this one. And there was not another person in the whole town that would have been less welcomed than her into this house. And yet she walks in and sees Jesus reclining at table. So at that time, the way that they would usually eat their meals in a setting like this is that the table would have been very low to the floor and folks would have sat on, on the floor itself or on a cushion and kind of leaned up against the table. That blows my mind. I can't sit cross-legged for more than 30 seconds without my whole legs going numb, but that's how they sat. So Jesus is sitting with his side up to this table, probably with his arm on the table or on the floor reclining and his feet are out behind him. And that's important for how we are going to read and, and understand the rest of this story. So, so the woman walks in and she sees Jesus and this group of Pharisees and religious leaders all at the table. And really the, the first thing that she gets to are the feet of Jesus. And, and seeing Jesus, she begins weeping and she falls down at his feet and, and wets them with her tears and wipes them with her hair. She kisses them and finally she anoints his feet with ointment that she brought with her. So I want to take just a little bit of time to unpack the things that she's doing here. So first of all, she, she stands behind him. This, this woman enters the house and she does not demand a seat at the table. She knows her place. She has no sense of entitlement. She humbly stands at the feet of the Lord. And then begins to, to wet his feet with her tears. I, I think we have to read into this just an absolute and an utter brokenness. She sees Jesus and is immediately utterly overcome with emotion, recognizing who she is and who she is in the presence of. I think we cannot look at this scene without thinking of the psalm that we read earlier this morning, Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, where David said, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This woman knows what it means to understand her sin, and she sees her Lord, and she is instantly broken. And then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. This woman has abandoned any thought of self-dignity or pride. She offers herself as a towel to wipe the feet of Jesus. And finally, she kisses and anoints his feet. We see in this story just total humility and absolute submission. Everything about what she's doing screams, I am unworthy. And in the presence of these religious leaders, in the presence of the elite, in the presence of organized religion, she is totally disinterested in what they have to offer and instead simply wants to worship at the feet of Jesus. So the Pharisee reclining at the same table sees what's happening, sees this this scene that is taking place in his house, and he immediately begins to judge. 
First of all, he, he judges the woman. He says, what sort of woman this is? Implied here, the obvious answer in his mind is she's a sinner. And, and again, implied, I think, is unlike me. I mean, this man looks at this woman and says, everything she is, I am not. Everything I am, she's utterly incapable of. What is this woman doing here? This is just dripping with pride and self-righteousness. And he also is upset by the fact that she's touching Jesus because the, the thought of being touched by or associated with or even in the presence of someone who is as sinful as she was was to this man just utterly incomprehensible. But not only does she judged the woman. She judges Jesus. He, he concludes that Jesus, there's no way he can be a prophet because if he were really from God, then he would reject this woman outright. If he were really from God, he would have nothing to do with, with this sinful person kneeling, falling down at his feet. And this Pharisee's entire viewpoint of how to approach God, we can see is just built on self-effort and self-righteousness. Now, we're told that these are things that were going on in Simon's head. These aren't things that he was saying out loud, but Jesus, in his omniscience and infinite wisdom, looks into the heart of this man, sees his sinful attitude, and then tells a story in verses 40 through 43. There's two debtors. They both owe pretty significant sums of money. One, 500 denarii, 150. We understand a denarius to be about a day's wage. So in rough uh, numbers to estimate that cost today, 500 would probably be about $100,000. 50 would probably be around 10,000. Both significant sums. And what's important in this story is that both of these sums of money are totally beyond the ability of the debtors to pay. The day of reckoning comes, they have their debt, the lender looks at them and says, where's my money? They are out of luck. They have no way of paying it back. So the lender simply cancels the debt. He doesn't set up a payment plan. He doesn't tell them how they can get their finances in order and work to pay him back. No, the debtor just says, this significant sum of money that you owe me, this substantial indebtedness is gone. It's utterly canceled. And already in the story that Jesus tells, we see a beautiful picture of the gospel a sin debt that is utterly impossible to pay, and a gracious sovereign and an inconceivable pardon. But what's important to note here is the question that Jesus asks to drive home the point of this parable, and that is, which of these will love me more? Which of these will love him more? The Pharisee answers correctly, and Jesus affirms his answer. And now in verses 40 through 43, uh, or 40, excuse me, 44 through 46, Jesus begins to really draw home the application here of the story that he just told. But something that we have to note in verse 44, we're told that turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Now, if this is one of the most beautiful stories in all of scripture of redemption and, and of the heart of Jesus, then this phrase right here, I think, has to take the cake because the creator of the universe... The righteous judge turns his body away from the table, away from the Pharisees, away from their self-righteousness, away from organized religion, and turns and faces this woman with eyes full of love, compassion, and welcoming grace. And not even looking at Simon anymore, Jesus says to him, Simon, do you see this woman? Simon, do you see this woman? Oh, he had seen her all right. He saw all that he needed to see. He saw her sin. He saw what he viewed as just her utter helplessness and wickedness, but he saw all the wrong things. And so now Jesus begins a point-by-point -point comparison of the righteous Pharisee 
and of the sinful woman. He begins by saying, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Foot washing was usually done by servants, but it was a common courtesy to give to guests during that time nonetheless. And the Pharisee apparently thought that he was just totally above washing Jesus' feet. God in human flesh walks into Simon's house, and Simon is so proud, and he's so self-assured that he doesn't even offer Jesus this basic courtesy. Simon has no sense of awe, no sense of admiration, no recognition of his need. But in contrast to the righteous Pharisee, Jesus says, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. As opposed to Simon, this woman sees Jesus and is instantly overwhelmed at his very presence. And she's broken by the recognition of her sin and standing before God. And and in humble submission to Jesus, she can do nothing else but throw herself at his feet. Jesus continues. He says, you gave me no kiss. Simon was really just trying Jesus out. He he has him over, but he doesn't really want to commit. Simon is keeping Jesus at at arm's length. Simon is really disinterested in in who Jesus really is. Sure, he's, he's interesting. He has a large crowd of followers. Simon is a religious leader, so he probably feels some sense of prestige of of having this man over, or Simon's probably concerned with his reputation at the time. But at the end of the day, Simon is really keeping Jesus at arm's length. There is no real, no life-transforming faith or love. But again, in comparison to him, from the time that the woman came in, she did not cease to kiss the feet of her Lord. Her love is all-consuming. She cannot stop showering Jesus with affection. And in the final comparison, Jesus says, you did not anoint my head with oil. Again, this is something, this is language we're not necessarily used to, but at that time, this would have been just a common courtesy that the Pharisee just totally ignores, has nothing to do with. And yet, by contrast, she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, the the different words here, oil versus ointment, are used on purpose. The the Pharisee cannot even uh, deem to give just basic, cheap household oil to the Lord, and yet she sacrifices this costly, expensive ointment at the feet of Jesus. So there's three things that the woman did to Jesus that the Pharisee did not. The Pharisee failed to do the most basic acts of hospitality, kindness, or respect, and yet the woman went, above and beyond in every way. Now, something that we have to note here, Jesus is not preaching a gospel of works. He's not saying that the woman sacrificed more, did the right things, acted the right way, therefore she is good, therefore she's okay. And, and the Pharisee failed to perform these re- requisite works, so, so he's not okay. No, instead what we must see verses through 40, 44 through 46 as are the natural outflow of the story that Jesus tells in 41 through 43. And in verses 47 and 48, Jesus is about to say as much and explain what he means by this story and what takes place. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Her sins, which are many. Make no mistake, this woman knew all about her own sin. She admitted it. She didn't hide from it. And in her mind, the quantity, severity, and frequency of her sin, no big deal when it comes to the sacrifice of Christ because the glorious truth of the gospel is that you cannot outsin the grace of God. She did not cheapen the sacrifice of Christ. 
by thinking that she had to get her life all put together before she approached him. No, instead, she saw her Savior and ran to him. And that's why Jesus says her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now, we're told here that this takes place for she loved much. And we, we should not understand for she loved much as the cause of her forgiveness because Jesus himself is about to say that your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is not a works-based salvation here. Jesus is linking love in this passage with an understanding and a recognition of our indebtedness to the Savior. She knew how much trouble she was in. She knew that she could never pay her debt or, or work her way out of it, so she accepted the payment of her debt. And as a result of this, she loved much. But Jesus continues, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It's not that his sins were not many. By no means is Jesus saying, well, look at this woman. She had a lot of sins, and so she's forgiven a lot. And you, Simon, you're okay. You've got some sin, but you're only forgiven a little, but we're all good. No, what, what he's saying here is that Simon thought that his sins weren't all that many. He thought he was good enough. He compared himself to others and concluded, you know what? I think I'm okay. And it was based on this heart attitude that the result of this was that he loved little. Again, read love here as the result or the natural outflow of repentant faith. The Pharisee thought that he had it all together. He thought that his righteous deeds were good enough, and so therefore he saw no real need for Jesus, no need for forgiveness, and certainly no problem with himself. Therefore, there was no love, no repentant faith. So Jesus already has his back turned on the table, already has his back turned on Simon. And already looking at this woman, he now speaks directly to her in verse 48 and says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. The most beautiful and glorious phrase that a sinful human being could ever hear. And yet Jesus said this not only to, to comfort the woman and, and communicate his forgiveness, but also this was meant to be an incendiary comment. It was meant to, to force those looking on to ask what they ask in verse 49, which is, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? This question, who is Jesus, is a question that uh, the Gospel of Luke seeks to answer really at every turn. And these individuals know that if, if this man truly forgave this woman, uh, that only God can forgive. And so now they have a decision to make. Believe or deny. Accept Jesus as the Messiah or reject him altogether. And the fact that they're even asking this question is an indication of where they land. But Jesus is really not even concerned with what's going on behind him. Jesus is still locked in on this woman, not even acknowledging the conversation going on behind him. With, with eternal love and grace, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And the woman leaves from dead and overwhelmed in her trespasses and sins to alive in Christ, from enmity against her creator to peace with God. So who is this who even forgives sins? It is Jesus, the Son of God and God himself, God in human flesh, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, who cares little about your resume, who could not care less about the righteous deeds that you bring to him for salvation, but only wants broken and repentant faith. So 
from this passage, I, I think that there are really three points of application that we should walk away with. And the first is right out of verse 50, your faith has saved you. The first point of application, repent and believe the gospel. Do not read the story that Jesus tells in verses 41 and 42 as universalism. Jesus is not saying both, both the Simon and the woman had a debt, and, and one debt was way worse than the other, so she's more grateful, but we're all kind of good because the, the lender cancels all debts. No, that was not the intent of this story. There is no such thing as automatic forgiveness. The story was told to illustrate the difference in heart attitude of the one who understands the immensity of their sin debt and those who think that they're just not all that bad. Verse 50 says that this woman was saved by faith. And juxtaposed or contrasted to her are the Pharisees. They are religious. They are externally righteous. They are well-respected. They have the resume, and yet they are children of their father, the devil, as Jesus says in John 8, 44. There's a passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The unfortunate reality is that unless these Pharisees had a miraculous change of heart after this account, then Matthew 7 became their eternal reality. And the truth is that there are people in churches across this nation and across this world who are trusting their religiosity, who are trusting their works, who are trusting their church attendance, who are trusting their reputation, but have never trusted the Savior. They have never been broken by their sin and the immensity of their debt. They've never realized and admitted their utter hopelessness. They view Jesus as a great add-on to what they've already got going for them. If the Spirit of God has this morning shined the light into your sin-darkened heart and shown this to be you and revealed to you your need of repentant faith, then, like this woman, simply fall before Jesus and cast your soul at his feet. Repent and believe the gospel. But the second point of application for the church is that we need to be comfortable with our brokenness and weakness. Now, This is not to say that we ought to be content with our sin. We ought to fight our sin through the Spirit with all of our might. But I think that we are not nearly comfortable enough with the reality of our fallen nature, with our brokenness and our weakness. Because far too often, my life resembles the Pharisee in our story, much more than my life resembles this woman. Because I I hide behind a facade of having it all together. I care about everything around me looking just right. I care about my reputation. I want people to look at me and say, he's a good guy or he's a good Christian or a strong follower of Christ. And so I don't pretend that I have sin struggles with the people who surround me. I'm not willing to be broken. I'm not willing to admit my fallenness and my desperate need for a savior. I I hide my sin. But what if we all put formalities and reputation aside and instead just ran together to the feet of Jesus? What if we were comfortable enough with our forgiveness and with our standing before the Father that we were willing to let our fellow believers in? We were willing to admit our brokenness to one another. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. 
and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. The truth is that Christianity was never intended to be a solo adventure. It would say team sport from start to finish. We need confession to God and we need confession to others. Walking in the light is, is, is just as much about living in open honesty with one another as it is with God. God calls us into the light with one another. And I think that, that the grace of God that he intends for us, that he gives us through his church, through communion and fellowship with other believers, is, is not tapped into because we're just hiding because we're so proud, because we're so concerned with the way that people think of us. But if we were more like this woman, if we were just simply willing to admit our brokenness and admit our need and let people in, I, I think that the beauty of the gospel would be even that much more transformative in our lives. Be comfortable with your brokenness and your weakness. And finally, worship Jesus. This woman only had eyes for her Savior. She walked into a room that had to have been intimidating beyond reason. And yet reputation, status, cost, none of it mattered. She ran and she threw herself at the feet of Jesus. And this, this true, heartfelt, genuine worship can only come from a deep recognition of our debt. She had no thought of self-sufficiency. She was intimately aware of her own sin. But instead of wallowing in that sin, instead of hiding in that sin, she boldly approached and accepted the grace and mercy of Jesus, and she worshiped. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your mercy. Thank you that our salvation is by grace and grace alone. Lord, we humbly admit that if it were up to us, we would be of all men most miserable. God, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we don't have to hide. We don't have to work our way into a right standing with you. But God, I, I humbly admit to you this morning that in my life, I see far more Pharisaism than I do humble recognition of my debt like this woman. So Lord, I ask that you would break down our, our walls of pride, break down the hard hearts that are inside of us and allow us to be open and honest with our sin. Allow us to let other people in. And would, would you just use this passage, use this example of this woman in the lives of the people of this church to walk humbly in the light with one another. God, I would be naive to assume that not a single person listening to this has the heart of the Pharisee. Lord, I, I know that there are many people across this nation who go to church and who are trusting in their self-righteousness, but who have never entered into a personal relationship with their Savior. God, I ask that you would shine the light of the gospel into their sin-darkened heart and bring them to salvation this very morning. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your grace. Would you make us like this woman? Would you help us to fall down at your feet and humbly worship you and give our lives to you? In Jesus' name, amen.